Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Valentino Stoll. Hey, now. Luke Stutters. Hello, there. John Epperson. Hello, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. This week, we have a special guest, and it's Moximo Mussini. Hey, folks. Now, do you want to introduce yourself? Let us know why you're famous. <laughs> I'm not famous, but I'm a software developer. I've been working with Ruby for the past eight years in a bunch of other languages as well. And the topic that got me in the podcast is BitRuby, a library to integrate BitJS in Ruby projects, such as Rails. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv, and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Yeah, so you're taking away all my fun because I've had so many people say it so many different ways. But yeah, I, I think we settled on before the show VIT, but it's yeah. V-I-T-E for anyone who's confused. And as far as I understand, it's something that came out of the Vue community and is related to that. Yeah, correct. The author of the library is the same author of Vue. And he picked the name just to keep on the play. Bu is the French word for bu, as in English, b i e w. And so he also chose a French word for this project. And although initially it was meant for Vue projects, sort of a webpack replacement for Vue projects, it turned into a framework agnostic framework tooling that uses rollup under the hood and can be used for a lot of different types of projects. Even I, I know that some people are actually using it to build desktop app applications. So it's very flexible. It's based around ESM modules, like the JavaScript modules. Mm -hmm. So it leverages the native support in, in your dev browser to, to work. So basically everything gets processed on demand, which is what makes it faster than the traditional style of bundling the whole application and then uh, sending it to your browser. So as your browser requests your application files, um, Beat will only process the ones that are requested and won't do anything with the rest. So you could have a very large application and as long as it's split into separate pages that are separate modules, your browser will only fetch the ones that are being used on the current page and Beat will only process uh, those. So the biggest improvement is around the development experience. In terms of build, it has some uh, nice features around it, but Webpack can do anything that uh, this one can do. I think the biggest advantage is what you can do during development. And also that, that the on-demand mentality has, some people are doing innovations around the front-end tooling, and they were only able to come up with these new ideas because they were using this new tool, right? Like sometimes least some things you could all already do in Webpack, but no one had thought about doing something like that. And sort of like how when React came out, it was sort of a revolution in terms of how you think about rendering views. And then everyone is using that paradigm, like even for native apps. And, and I think this is the same thing for front-end tooling. This set of new tools like Snowpack, BitJS, WMR, mm -hmm. They they bring this on-demand mentality, which has a lot of benefits. So can we talk a little bit more about what the on-demand really is, right? So, I mean, I get that I'm only pulling down what I use. How does that... How does that translate? Okay, so we're, we're all used to basically having some amount of caching involved, right? So I'm not re-downloading my JavaScript on every page because Rails 
basically saying, oh, you already requested it, just use the version that you have. I'm sorry, not Rails, but my web server is telling my browser that it already has the version and it doesn't need to re-download it. How does, I mean, are, are we, does it just get split up into a bunch of small packages and now that's okay because we're on HTTP2? Or can we just like go through that a little bit more? I'm not exactly sure how we got Sure. Here. I know that some I know that some package managers are taking advantage of HTTP2. Is this one of them? Maybe maybe that's a better question. Yeah, HTTP2 is optional. It definitely helps if you have a lot of different files because it will speed up the transfer. We're talking about development, right? So normally your server wouldn't tell the browser to keep the file because it wouldn't fingerprint the file. So your mm-hmm. browser would request it every time that you reload the page, right? So let's talk about the typical flow on, let's focus on Rails. So you visit a page on your browser, Rails will render that page and it will include like script tags and link reference to style sheets. Right. And then your browser will request all these files, right? Every time you make a change, you will reload the page and the process will happen again, right? Mm-hmm. So the difference with, with this kind of tooling, and, and also let's compare it with the webpack, webpacker style. So you will make a change, web bundle your entire application. It will detect any CSS that you're importing from JavaScript and so on. It will create like a bundle for that. And then Webpacker will inject a reference to these bundled files or, or to, to a reference that can be uh, served by Webpacker, by the Webpack dev server. And then it will send it to your browser, right? So in both situations, the file needs to be processed first or in Sprocket sometime it will be processed on demand, but it's a lot simpler. It doesn't handle imports, right? So let's focus on Webpacker. Your application could be very complex. It will analyze the import chain in your files. It will bundle them and then they can be served. So it will detect like the entry point, which Webpacker calls packs. And then your browser will request that the entry point and it will already be bundled. It will have everything that it needs, right? So this is the era before ESM native imports, right? So now that your dev browser supports ESM, like Chrome, Firefox, anything that you might be using uh, can handle ESM out of the box, that enables uh, this new flow, which instead of bundling your entry point, the dev server, in this case, the Vite ser- dev server, will just send the initial file, right? Your entry point might be importing other files. It will only process that file which might be very small, right? It might just be an import to other files, but your browser will handle that import. So it won't be processed by the tool. The tool will rewrite your code to make it compatible with the browser. In certain situations, let's say, let's say that you are writing TypeScript, TypeScript, it will remove the types, which the browser doesn't understand because it only understands JavaScript, and it will send it to your browser. Then your browser will analyze the imports and it will follow the import chain. And that applies for every file. So for example, for CSS, it will do uh, a slight rewrite. So instead, because uh, your browser doesn't understand CSS as a JavaScript import, the tool will convert that CSS file into a JavaScript file with a, with a CSS string that will be injected as a link tag, right? So all these transformations, you don't actually have to think about them. It's just it's meant to work out of the box without having to think about the complexity under it. Uh, but the idea is that it leverages the fact that your browser can process ESM imports, right? That's, I think, the, the main point, which then enables a bunch of other optimizations and uh, development I- improvements, you could say, improvements to the development experience. But but the, the basis of how it works is it will not bundle because it doesn't need to anymore. That makes sense. This is primarily uh, an upgrade to the development experience. It's more or less no different once we go to production. We're just going to compile one big bundle. Everybody's going to download it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The, okay. cool. the focus of, awesome. the tool, of the tooling is to improve the development experience. You could say that in terms of what gets shipped to production, it's still convenient for many different reasons to create a bundle. So, uh, it will bundle your code and it, it will optimize it and it will prevent import cascades, which will happen if you use something like import map or things like that, which will require HTTP2. In this case, the, the, because the tooling runs locally in your development during development, uh, your your machine the requests are local, right? So they will be very fast, even if you're on HTTP 
standard, right? And once you're in production, it will the code will be bundled just as if you were using Webpack. So it will also be optimal from that perspective. And you will you will probably have the assets on cast on a CDN anyway. So HTTP2 is, is not required. Cool. Yeah, I was getting all kinds of hung up until you explained that it was more a development-focused tool. And I was like, oh, okay. So all the reasons that I want a big bundle in production still apply, or mostly still apply. Exactly, yeah. The, the only difference is that by default, it, focus, it, it focuses on, on the fact that most, the, the largest percentage of uh, users are on bro- browsers that do understand uh, ESM right. imports. So the, the output of the bundle code is smaller. You can still target IE11 or, or, or all the browsers that don't understand ESM uh, using plugins on top of the, the standard output. But the standard output is super optimized because of that. Because it, everything is designed around ESM. So by the time you bundle for production, you also bundle thinking about ESM support. So basically, you combine the files that can be together, but it will rely on the fact that, let's say that I have two pages and I split my, I make a dynamic import when I navigate, for example. It will create two separate files, even Let's say that those files were important, hundreds of different files. We'll bundle in, bundle them into the most efficient combination. So let's say that you have, I don't know, a vendor dependency. Let's call that C. I have page A, page B. It will create a bundle A, a bundle B, which might uh, import a separate C file with the shared stuff. So basically, it's the output is very efficient, same as Webpack. Mm. Okay, so... As a Rails dev, like, <laughs> is this... John's reading my no, mind, no. I swear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I feel like we're still kind of... Uh, I'm trying to, like, move us forward, but I feel like we're kind of still a little bit stuck here, like, in understanding, like, what the value is that we're getting from it and, like, what the cost is. So as a Rails dev, I guess I'm kind of curious, like, I mean, I, I definitely see, like, it's potentially, like, maybe a little faster than Webpacker or maybe a lot faster. Um, uh, you know, I, it, it's to... depending on the situation it can be extremely faster like especially when it comes to iterating let's say that i'm working on a style sheet or something like that uh it's almost instant for styles which is i think the easiest way to see the value is that you're you're tweaking your style nice. sheet and you can have your browser next to it and the updates are going to be almost instant uh we're talking about milliseconds right not not seconds. So it's as fast as you need it to be. So you can just tweak as you nice. as you want, which is really handy because, of course, you can also tweak styles on the browser. But it's really nice that anything that you do can be saved instantly, and you don't have to revisit it later uh, or forget about stuff. You know, let's say that you added padding, and then you accidentally reload the page, and now the padding is gone. When you're editing your source files, that never yep. happens. So that for me is already a benefit. So you could be using uh, only Rails, server-side rendered, almost no JavaScript. You can already get a, the benefit from Beat by, by, using, by using it to process your style sheets. It's, it's extremely fast for that. And also you're leveraging the native M- NPM packages, which are usually the original implementation. So let's say that you're using SAS. Instead of having to install the C extension, which is deprecated, you will be using the Dart SaaS implementation, which is the official one, and it's very well supported. So you get the benefit of tapping into the JavaScript ecosystem, and it's still convenient to use, right? The only downside, I think, is you need Node, but it's very likely that you already have Node installed if you're using mm-hmm. Webpacker, for example. So it's not yep. a true downside. But yeah, I, I think the the only case where you can say, I... I don't think it justifies the complexity is if you were not using Webpacker and you are using very simple style sheets and perhaps you're not even using SAS, you're using straight CSS, then sure, I think it's better to avoid additional tooling. But if you have a complex app and you have a lot of styles, I think being able to iterate faster is already such a nice benefit. And then when it turns to... When it comes to JavaScript applications, let's say that you have a small front end, you might be using React or Vue or anything. In Webpacker, changes to your files usually take seconds 
to update in bit is so it's usually milliseconds, right? So okay. as your app grows in Webpacker, let's say that you have several packs, different entry points. As your application grows, the performance for processing your changes starts degrading and it starts degrading very fast. So if your application is very big, sometimes it might take 10 seconds or five seconds. <laughs> I know people that, that have like <laughs> 30 second incremental changes. Um, mm-hmm. So at that point, you start wondering, you know, will it hot reload? Should, should I reload the page? If you reload it before it's done, it, it, your changes w- won't be applied. So, you know, you start getting into this situation where your changes can't keep up with, you know, the browser can't keep up with your changes, basically, or, or the tooling can't keep up with your changes. So the nice thing about this uh, style of, of tools is that because they process on demand, it doesn't matter if you have 10 packs, as long as you're only modifying files that affect one, it's going to be almost instant. So I think that's a huge advantage. Let's say that you modify a view file, for example, which is self-contained, and then it will only need to process that file. So it's we're talking about, let's say that you had a big app, so it takes 10 seconds to hold reload. The view file will be processed in 20 milliseconds, and it will be in your browser instantly. So we're talking about a big difference, which gets bigger as your app grows. And I think one of the key aspects of this style of on-demand processing is that it never grows with your application size. It's more related to, to the structure of the files that you're modifying. So when you're working on, let's say, the leaps of this dependency graph, let's say that I'm working on a component, that's almost instant every time. It's only when you modify, let's say, the main entry point where you are modifying a bunch of, where you are importing a bunch of different files, that can be slower, but but still, it's like half a second. So it's very satisfying to work with with this tool because you you usually don't need to wait, which means that you stay focused and and just keep going. You know, the the typical flow that people talk about. Once you are in the zone, you just keep modifying files. You don't have to think about waiting for the browser. I think that's that's the main selling point for for this type of tool. So okay, Maximo, let let's say we have a huge Rails app or or JavaScript app in this case. How easy is it to migrate to V at that point? Well, I I think migrating is probably the the hardest part. If you're starting fresh, I think it has no downside downsides and like it has a very vibrant ecosystem. The maintainers are very responsive. And, and, you know, by this point, I think there's plenty of documentation. And also the tooling ar- around the, the bundling and transformation of files is Rollup, which is a very mature project, right? So tons of plugins, different ways to process. It's very likely that anything that you need, someone has already built a library for it. But if you're migrating, it's always a challenge. It's like migrating, let's say that you were using, I, I don't know, Active Record and you want to move to SQL or you want to move to ROM, it's always going to be painful because your code is based around the intricacies of the dependency that you're using. So it's very likely that you're using things that are very specific to Webpack that are more awkward to do in Beat. Or sometimes the, doing it in Beat would be a lot simpler. But just the fact that you have to modify and revisit, I think it can be painful. Uh, there are some reports about users migrating huge code bases to be uh, from Webpack. So it's definitely possible. But at that point, you have you need to have a good motivation. So you need to, I would say, if, if you're experiencing the pain of waiting for changes, uh, another thing about this on-demand thing, the server starts very fast, right? So if you start Webpacker, sometimes you have to wait three minutes for the app, the entire app to bundle. And then the changes might take five, 10 seconds. With B, the startup is also fast. Also making config changes, it restarts automatically. So it has some some very nice things around the, the general experience. So let's say that you are experiencing the pain that every time you have to make a change or, or you, you are running tests, for example, and you need to wait three minutes for, for the app to start so that then you can start testing it and making changes. Or let's say that every time you make a change, it takes 10 seconds, 30 seconds to, to update to the point that it's slowing you down. I think if that's the case, then yes, you might evaluate migrating to, to this tooling because it can definitely help you. But if your app 
takes, I don't know, a second or yeah, a second to, to reload your changes, then you're probably, you probably don't need it. Because again, the, the main benefit is the development experience. So if you're not experiencing pain with Webpacker or Sprockets, then you don't actually need it. I remember in a large Rails app that I worked on for seven years, the, just making a CSS a SAS change on Sprockets would take a very long time to reload. We're talking about 30 seconds. Just playing Sprockets, but it would take 30 seconds to reload. And I remember that was extremely painful. So if that's the case, then yes, definitely migrating will make your life easier. And in terms of cost, it will make sense to invest on migrating. Every migration has a, a cost and it's usually higher than people think. Perhaps what's nice about if you were using Webpack is that your, your code probably uses mostly ESM imports. So if that's the case, then migrating might be relatively simple. If you are using a lot of the node-based syntax like require, then it's definitely going to be harder. So as closer as your code is to the standard, to the future standard, it's going to be easier. I've, um, Sweet. I've, it's, it's time for some real talk. It's time for some real talk. And I'm sensing some, some pushback from my fellow co-hosts here. And it's no secret, Maximo, it's no secret that most Rails developers prefer a fat backend and what we have here is essentially a tool for people to fat front end. I'm working on my uh, fat front end. Oh, you're talking about code. <laughs> I sure am. Now, personally, I do have a fat front end. I have a, a Vue app. It's not a Vue app. It's kind of a Rails app with a giant Vue page. And the backstory to this is that I used to work on a project that had about 20 config screens. And I wanted to create a proof of concept where I took those 20 configuration screens and I merged them into one configuration screen. So you could do the whole, it's a fairly standard kind of business manufacturing config setup, but you could just go down the page and you could do everything without changing pages. Yeah. Right. So you could kind of onboard really quickly. And because I needed fancy widgets to do this, I pulled in Vue to have the kind of real-time updating and you have to click save and go back to a different page, right? And this was ridiculously, you know, a ridiculous page, really. It was, it was too much. It was, a, it was a concept. But that was a very fat page. And when I had to reload that, it did take some time. And one of the things I was really interested in on the pages you were linking was the fact it could reload pages without reloading the whole page. Now, from my position of total ignorance, is that a kind of new thing that's particular to Vite, or is this something totally standard? Because what I have at the moment is essentially a live reload, which just reloads the whole page when you edit it. Yeah, so I'm editing in VS Code, I hit save, it goes, aha, new page, and it refreshes the whole page. But what this seems to do is to actually refresh part of the page like live right so is that is that a quite a kind of cool new thing that Vite does or is that just a totally standard thing that everything does down to that no if you were using webpack that's what people call hmr so hold module reload and it can be very granular so for example if you're working with you it has extremely granular hmr so if you modify a component it will only modify that component it will ship the changes through WebSockets, and this doesn't matter if you're using Webpack or Vite, it will ship only the changes for that component. So let's say that you have 20 lines of a view component, it will send those 20 lines, and then it will re-render the component if you only modify the template or the stylings. If you modify the style, it won't even re-render. It will just apply the style changes. If you modify the template, it will only re-render. And if you change the JavaScript, then it will unmount the component and remount it. So basically, it's going to be apply only what you change, which makes it extremely fast. And let's say that your app is very complex. Every time you reload the page, doesn't matter what you're using, the browser needs to parse the JavaScript, even if it's cached locally. And, and if your app is complex, that, that can take some time, right? So if every time you reload, it has to parse all that JavaScript again, then it doesn't matter what technology you're using, it's going to be slow. Even if you're using Beat, if you reload the entire page, it has to fetch all the files again, which be, will serve again, right? So the advantage of HMR, uh, which is a pretty old concept, I think, uh, might be 
eight years, I don't know, maybe more. But it's it was always for the JS folks, I guess. For people like us working with Ruby, I think we only got familiar with HMR when working with Webpack. So in these platform tents that you were talking about. So the idea is that you only ship the changes and you apply them without reloading a page, which means that sometimes you can even preserve the state. So let's say that I was filling in a form and I, or I'm in a wizard, like a three-step wizard, and then I modify the component, the, the state will be preserved and I will be in the same page. I don't need to repeat the whole process again. So that can really save a lot of time when you're developing that, that style of configuration page or wizards or, or stuff like that. In particular, if you're using state management, state management solutions like Vuex or Pinion or stuff like that, or, or Redux if you are on React, the fact that your state is still there, I think is a, a huge time saver because you are applying changes, sometimes changing the behavior, and you don't need to redo your actions again to, to get to test them. So that's the main benefit. But that's not new to beat, right? The only difference is that it will apply them extremely fast. So normally, Webpack, to ship those HMR changes, it still needs to bundle a large part of your application, even when using the incremental rebuild. With Beat, that part is extremely fast because it, it will only process the, the components that were affected by your change. It, it ha- there's a concept of HMR boundary. So let's say that you're changing a very small component like a button. It, it has no dependencies. Then it will only need to re-render that button. Let's say that you're rendering the form. You made a change to the form. It will need to re-render the whole form and so on. Of course, in some situations, let's say that I modified an entry point that was also setting a window variable. In that case, it will detect that there's no boundary and needs to reload the page to ensure correct behavior, right? But in most cases, you're working with components and and each component is a boundary, uh, which means your changes are can be applied safely. Yeah, once again, I'm a coding dinosaur and everyone else knows about this already. There we go. Yeah, at that moment, I'd use... Uh, well, this I use live reload, so it just opens the socket and then reloads the whole page. Uh, I do have Turbo Links turned on. Thank you very much, John. <laughs> he, was just, you're... he was suggesting no, I actually do on this project, and in fact, you're just like, what's that newfangled thing over there that only loads part of your page? And I was like, Turbo Links that in... you have to disable if you create a Rails new app. <laughs> in fact, in fact. I don't use TurboLink. I'm using, I was using the beta of uh, the Hotwired stack. So there, before it was oh. even released and it had loads of bugs, it's better now. I, I think it, it is. Was, it was pretty bad early this year. And includes Turbo, which is the new TurboLinks. So, yeah, yeah. It's none of that old, none of that old done and dust. Oh, yeah. Turbo My bad. Stuff. I'm on the, the Turbo. Yeah. Turbo. <laughs> you put your app on Turbo. So, Max, by the way, deal. <laughs> <laughs> so so Luke kept saying vu and if we're going with the French pronunciation that's actually correct. So I, I feel enlightened <laughs> now. Come on man. What is the what is, is this some kind of weird English thing I'm saying again? No, it's it's the way the French say it, vu and vite. Anyway, now so this is I have to say it differently. <laughs> yeah. You, you so leave the leave the French alone, Jack. Come on. Uh, there's none of that freedom fries. It's been 20 years. Hey, I'm I'm a quarter French, so there you go. More than a quarter French. But yeah, my grandmother was French. Anyway, so a couple things that I'm wondering about is, let's say that I want to put this into my Rails app. I'm thinking, okay, you know, boom, this is going to be awesome. My dev experience is going to be wonderful. And so I go and I, even in a Greenfield app, I start pulling in JavaScript libraries. And let me tell you, Webpacker is a ton of fun. It is a ton of fun. Like I'll go and I'll pick up a, uh, layout off of uh, what is it, Theme Forest, and then I'll come and I'll try and import it, and I don't quite get to cutting myself, but it's just it's it's so much fun figuring out how to get that into Webpacker. Um, Did you buy any themes during the? It's, it's just we've just come off Cyber, the Black Friday Cyber Monday, haven't we? Did you buy I, any not themes? this weekend? Oh, I only man, buy them I when I know I need them. I went theme shopping. I did. That was my. That was my. There you go. Black Friday. Mm-hmm. But my question is: is is how does Vite compare to Webpacker when it comes to the config that you have to do on it? It's it's a lot simpler to configure. So if you're adding plugins and stuff like that, it's a lot easier. 
especially for beginners, so much easier. Most things that you would configure in Webpacker, like you know, being able to import SVGs or image sources or stuff like that, or being able to import JSON, being able to import view files, being able to process JSX, all that stuff works out of the box. Or, or sometimes you need to add an official plugin for, let's say, get HMR for view, right? So mm -hmm. that the configuration story is a lot simpler than Webpack. That's one of the also one of the benefits, and and then it's also it's also I think easier in terms of uh, for the advanced users because creating plugins is also simpler. So I, I've created a bunch of bit plugins. For example, I created one that will reload the page when I make a change to the ERB templates so that I get something like what Luke was mentioning, live reload uh, thing, but for for my, my Rails templates, right? So the JavaScript and the style sheet will be automatically updated without reloading the page. But when you make a change to your templates, that needs to be server rendered again, right? So it was very easy to create a plugin that will automatically reload the page when I change the ERB. So that's also super convenient. And then when it comes to using dependencies, it's just as easy as Webpack. You will still add packages to your package JSON, and then we'll, they will be available. You will be able to import them in your JavaScript code. Same thing with style sheets. You can uh, import style sheets very easily. Also, the preprocessor support is great. So it doesn't matter what you're using. If you're using less SAS or uh, stylus or post-CSS, which is the default, actually. So you get auto-prefixer. You know, all you need to do is add auto prefixer to the post CSS config file, and it's it's done. You're already using it, so super simple in that regard. Awesome. Can we revisit the Ruby portion of this for a, a minute here? Because I'm looking through this V Ruby library, which is great, by the way. But it it looks like you're bypassing the asset pipeline. Is that right? Uh, it's not using it at all. Uh, same as Webpacker, which doesn't use it. So, you, but it also swaps out the pack tags from Rails. Uh, uh, so instead the, of the pack tags are from Webpacker. So yeah, because it's a different library, I created similar helpers, uh, which okay. are prefixed with bit. So bit style sheet tag, or bit JavaScript tag, or bit type TypeScript tag. They are very similar to the Webpacker tags, uh, which also don't use the asset pipeline. So normally these tags in Webpacker, they will during development they will render URLs that will hit your Webpack dev server. Same concept here. Uh, these tags during development will render URLs that will hit the Vite dev server and will fetch those files on demand. And so that's extremely similar to Webpacker, actually. And I thank Webpacker for, for all the innovations around the how, how you integrate with the backend. I think what I try to do is for Webpacker users, keep things very simple. Like migrating is very straightforward. It's usually one-to-one. -one. You replace JavaScript pack tag with beat JavaScript tag, and everything is very similar. It's also entry point based. So you can even keep your files in pack, packs if you want, or you can move them to up front end entry points if you want. So everything is configurable too. So if your code is already in app JavaScript, it will detect that during installation and it will read it from there. So com migrating from Webpacker, the Ruby aspect of it is very simple. It's, mi it's migrating your JavaScript code that might be challenging, but only in certain cases, like if you were using specific Webpack features. But let's say that you were using standard Webpacker, you never tweaked the config or anything. It's very likely that the migration will be simple. There are some subtle differences around imports. For example, in Beat, you specify the extension if you're importing things that are not JavaScript. So if you're importing view files, you have to add .view at the end, for example. In Webpack, uh, you, you can usually skip that, although it works if you add it. So it's like differences around how you would write the JavaScript code. But the Ruby side of it is extremely similar. And that's on purpose to so that you, if you are familiar with Webpacker, you don't need to learn a, a bunch of new things. It's, it's basically the same. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and, in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, 
whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. What about the installation? I mean, is it just take Webpacker out of my gem file, put Vite Ruby in and ta-da? Or, you know, do I have to run like a Rails generator in Rails? Uh, or yeah, how does that all look? Yeah, it's it will, It also works outside of Rails. So you can integrate right. it easily with, with like Padrino or with Hanami or even in plain rack. But in, Ra in Rails, the installation story, because Rails has a bunch of conventions, I was able to configure things out of the box for you. So there's an install command that will automatically uh, generate the, the standard configuration files, like mm -hmm. config bit JSON or bit config TS, where, where you will add your plugins if you need to. And it will configure the Ruby plugin, which will detect the endpoints and stuff like that. And once you run the install command, it should start and it will even try to detect your application HTML file, your layout file, and inject the types that you will need to get started. So if you are in a, in a greenfield Rails app and you run install, then you're ready to go. If you are using other stuff like Haml or stuff like that, then you might need to add it manually because I, I thought that Maybe it wasn't worth it to to try to cover every possible case during installation. But it, of course, it's something that if people want to contribute, I would be happy to take a pull request that detects also if you were using Haml and injects the the tags that you need using the Haml syntax and stuff like that. But but yeah, installation is simple. It also has an up, up, upgrade script so that you can upgrade Beat and and the Beat uh, plugin for Ruby at the same time and and also the gems without having to think about it. The version numbers match, so it's also easy to, to do it manually. All right, so I would be remiss if I didn't ask. So, you know, there's there's a few kind of up-and-coming tools out there, and mm -hmm. uh, with they all have varying compatibility degrees with Rails apps. And I know that I, I talked to Andrew Mason repeatedly about Snowpack. He's a big Snowpack fan over there. Well, I guess I'm I'm just kind of curious, like for for the person who's maybe I don't know, not sure what they're gonna do, and DHH is like, look, we're all gonna go to import map. That's what we're doing, and I just spent a bunch of time migrating a bunch of apps, or probably one app in most people's cases, to Webpacker, and it was it was tough. Like, why? I mean, why should I pick? Why should I pick Vite? Or or not maybe right yeah so For the first future. one is e the the first one is easy to answer the snowpack team has almost discontinued the tool they are the folks that are also behind Astro Astro Build which is a new uh, static generation tool and they moved to Beat so they are using Beat now and snowpack is probably See. going going to be discontinued I don't think I think they were pretty explicit about the fact that they will support it but. Now they are spending the, their energy improving Beat. So that's another good reason. So the, this tool has a lot of support because every framework can use it. You can use it with React, with Solid.js, Spelt. Speltkit is built on top of Beat. The maintainer of Spelt is now on Vercel. So everything is points to the fact that this tool, from that style of tooling, right, this tool is going to be like be around for several years, for sure. And you know, Webpack is not going away either, and they will keep improving it. But I think they cater to different audiences. Usually, if you're uh, in Rails, you don't need the flexibility provided by Webpack. And Beat will make the same decisions that you would normally make when configuring Webpack, except that you don't have to worry about that. And because it has also less dependencies, for example, it doesn't use Bubble, so you skip a lot of the pain that Ruby developers typically associate with 
using JavaScript dependencies. This is like a single thing that gets packaged in, into a single NPM package and, and usually runs out of the box. And it's hard to get stuck in dependency hell where you move one package and now the app won't compile and it's so hard to figure things out because it, it just, although Beat in its development has a bunch of dependencies, when it's packaged, when it's shipped, when it's published, those dependencies will be combined, right? So if it's working for most users, it's likely that it will work for you as well because there are just less combinations that are possible. You know, It's not possible that you're using the wrong Babel version because if it needs Babel, it, it got shipped into the same, into the proper version inside that package. A, a little specific, I guess, my answer in that regard. And then you mentioned also the import map thing. I think that's going to be a great solution. I think it would be great if by default, instead of sprockets, Rails would ship import maps. I think that's going to be... I think we're going to, right? I think that's the proper solution for as the Rails default, right? Webpacker, I think it's too complex to be the default. You need Node.js installed, which is also a downside. So let's say that you are getting started with Ruby or you're getting started with, with Rails, you're learning Rails. It's nice to have something like import maps, which is a standard, and you will be able to work with JavaScript and dependencies without having to learn about additional tools. It's all the browser, right? But that will never cover the HMR aspect that we were talking about. So as soon as your app get, gets complex or as soon as your iteration gets slow, then import maps will not be able to, to deal with that. You know, if you have a complex wizard or you have a lot of state, or if you your app is imports React, for example, every time you reload the page, you will have to parse React again. And there's no way around that. So it's going to be slow, even if you're using import maps. So mm -hmm. the, the benefit of, of using Webpack or Beat is that they they can process your code in a way that makes it easier to hold reload, right? Which there are some future proposals to support, but mostly for bundling. But but there's nothing that will replace HMR anytime soon in, in the browser space. So if you if you like being able to see your changes as fast as possible in the browser, I think these tools will stay around for a long time, even by the time import maps is official and it's the default option in Rails. But again, you know, we're talking about front-end heavy or even, you know, I think Beat is valuable even if you're only processing style sheets. I will say that. Just the fact that you can iterate on styles instantly. For me, <laughs> I, I, I work a lot with styles. So that for me alone is, is already a win. But uh, and you, you can actually use it only for that. You could use Beat for, for style sheets and and just the rest on import maps. But uh, once you have the tool, you can just get the best out of it, I guess. But I would say it's like what we discussed earlier. If you're not feeling the pain of slow iterations, slow being, depending on your tolerance, could be a second. If a second is too slow for you or three seconds is too slow for you, you will probably find Beat to be valuable. And when, once we start talking about productivity or being in the flow or being able to implement your changes as you think about them without getting blocked. I think anything that helps you get to, towards that goal is, is viable, right? I think there's a, there's another tool that is not import maps. Uh, I think it's called uh, ESPL Rails. Um, mm -hmm. Beat uses yeah. ESPL, right? So in that regard, the speed is going to be similar. And then it, it, it comes back again to what we were discussing. HMR, not being able to, not having to reload the page. So all these alternatives uh, make different trade-offs. ESPL Rails is great because you don't need Node. It, it's just a codependency that you can just install the binary. It will install the binary for you and it will still be able to process your files really fast. And import maps, the benefit is that it's just a browser technology, but it has downsides in production, which is the worst kind of downside if you ask me. Because you lose the benefit of bundling your code, uh, which is affects performance directly. There's no workaround, even if you're using ACB2, which no Ruby server supports well. So I think it's pretty tight. I, I think it, these are great changes, like for new users, being able to start working with your application with JavaScript and not even having to know anything about 
yeah, NPM, that, I think that's great. I think that's, that's a huge benefit, especially for learning. Once you start working with complex applications, or if you need to work with even the slightest amount of JavaScript and CSS, you can already get the benefits of HMR. At the same time, because of the configuration story is so polished, it's not hard, you know, to just install it and start using it. I think that's that's huge. So just quick question here. So there are people that don't reverse proxy their Puma behind an Nginx or something <laughs> like that? I never do that. I stopped doing it. Like, how is HTTP it. too hard? You just like literally, oh, it's fine. I got it. <sighs> I stopped doing it because I can't stand Nginx, like, number one. Oh, that's and fair. I, number two. I kind of like it because I had Apache before. And... If I run Puma in, ah, oh, it's, it's, it's not threaded mode. What do you call it? When you've got multi-process mode? Yeah, I can't well, even remember multiple, now. Multiple workers. But yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, and, then it breaks and they're all threaded. It breaks all of my sites in really interesting ways. And I've kind of got addicted to it now. And I kind of, I'm still playing with it, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, I've been doing a lot of coding on Raspberry Pis because the kind of pseudo embedded mm. system. So I like, I kind of got web stacks running on kind of Singapore computers. And one of the games I like to play is see how many, you know, how much can I serve on one? Right, how many concurrent users can you support on one of these kind of potato PCs? And obviously, if you have like a really kind of low RAM usage and you just wrote up loads of them, yeah, then you can kind of handle an enormous amount of concurrent users. And if you eliminate the Nginx front end, you can actually get more performance. So if you load up a Puma with the kind of workers enabled, no Nginx, you can get crazy numbers, but it just breaks everything. Everything stops working. I'll, I'll make a blog post when I do it, but yeah, I don't. I, I don't run Nginx uh, because I want my RAM back. Oh, man. <laughs> All right. Well, enough of the tech shaming. Is there anything That's, else that we want to? Well, listen, I'm, ba- <laughs> I'm back on the show after I don't know how many episodes. I don't know what you expected, Chuck. Really, you let me. In. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I'm just, I'm just trying to push us along. Is there anything else that we should dive into on this before we do picks? I'd like to flag up the um, Jumpstart Beat, which I found off your article, Maximo, which I thought was really, uh, really interesting. First, I never really kind of spent a lot of time with Jumpstart Rails. So there's like loads there, which I've never looked at before. But there's some really interesting videos showing how Vite interacts with stimulus controllers, which I enjoyed. And yeah, I thought I was really, I got a lot of value out of that. So thanks for introducing me to that. That library, the, the the stimulus HMR, that was all, almost like a concept. Someone jumped into the BitJS Discord. There's a Rails channel that you can visit if you have any questions. I, I try to check it every week. And someone asked, can I use HMR with stimulus? And I thought, why not? It's globally registered. It should be easy to re-register it after you make changes. And I was able to implement that plugin in I think it's the fastest plugin that I've ever written, which shows how cool VJS is. And it works really nicely. Uh, so I did that. You know, you would never do that. Like, undo your changes, like the reveal controller. Like, you will only implement once it's active. But I thought it was nice to demonstrate how you can do and undo changes uh, and it will just work with HMR. So yeah, it's, it's really flexible. You can use it in, in very different ways. I made some changes that allow you to combine Beat with view components, like the GitHub library. So depending on what you need, I think it's a very flexible tool. I, I, I consider it to be more hackable than, than Webpack, which is usually a bit more complex, to, especially to get around loaders and plugins and stuff like that. In, in Beat, it's very similar to Rollup. So there are only plugins, and, your, and plugins can transform code or can resolve certain import paths to whatever you want. So it's kind of intuitive to get started. You can always jump into the VJS Discord, which is very active. And you know, if you want to create a plugin, you can explain what you're trying to do, and people will certainly help you. I'm sure there'll be more questions, but I did have one last one that hopefully can just be a yes or no one. Do you does Vite sort of support our lagging friends who are currently like tying up their sprockets into Webpacker and just trying to limp by that way? Are they are they sort of able to just keep doing what they're doing or do they have to actually move on to modern JavaScript finally? 
<laughs> the the tools can coexist and it's very okay. the recommended approach is to migrate gradually if you can right so that way you mitigate the risk you can try it depending on how your app structured if your app is if your front end is hybrid let's say that every page is server rendered and then some some javascript becomes active then you could you could migrate a page at a time which is ideal and then the risk is very low because you can try it on a page, see how it feels, test the HMR, get used to it, love it, and then you want to migrate the rest. But you know, depends on <laughs> depends on yeah. your experience. My experience has been that that most people doing that just they're like, sweet, I tied up my sprockets to Webpacker, I'm never touching it again. And they they come to the meetup next month and they they still haven't moved. It's fine. So okay. How much curious? You, cool. You know, you know that sprockets are coming back. In Rails, like you know, Sprocket's coming back. Oh, please! I can, I, you please can see it. You can see. I can see every time I look at DHH's blog. I'm expecting to see. I think honestly, the biggest blocker to it is that David can't think of a new word for Sprockets that's not oh, Sprockets, but is similar. It, I think it's, it's not needed anymore because we're all using stimulus, right? We don't need, we'll never need Sprockets again. Now, I think after ESM, the Sprockets mechanism is too too rustic. It's very hard to think about JavaScript and as you know patching files one after the other. Once you have modules, you can prevent a lot of mistakes. Your code will always load in the proper order. It will only execute once. So many benefits, and it works on every browser now. So I think there's no going back to sprockets. There might be something similar to it in the future, but it's going to be based around DSM for sure. Yeah, I think it could be hard to migrate some of those like really big code bases, right? Oh sure, um, but but yeah, I'm definitely in the same boat too. Like, why would I go back when I have stimulus now, right? Yeah, mm. I, I think the, cool. the key is that every migration is expensive, and you should really think about the benefits. Think about the investment that you're doing and the benefits that you get as a result, and it should be very compelling, right? If the answer is well, it will be almost the same, you should never do it. You know, your your code currently works probably. And after the migration, you don't know. You don't know how many bugs you can introduce. But if the benefits are very compelling, then it might be worth it. Then you have extra time to fix bugs. Cool. All right. Well, I'm going to push us to picks. picks. Yeah. Maximo, if people want to connect with you or ask you questions about this stuff, where do they find you online? You can reach me on Twitter. I'll link the, the Twitter, but it's basically Maximo Mussini, like my name. I'm going to paste the link. And you can also hop on the BitJS Discord. And I'm t- typically answering questions on, on the Rails and the Eels channel, which is a library that I'm working on recently. Also, we'll send the link there. So that those are the, the main ways to, to reach me. Awesome. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Valentino, why don't you start us off? Sure. So I'll keep on theme here for my first one. A while back, there was a post on the Mozilla blog about ES modules, a cartoon deep dive. I recommend you check that out if you're interested in learning how ES modules work, what they are, etc. My next couple of picks come from, I've plugged this before, but the Women on Rails newsletter is really awesome. I've been following it for a while now and always great content comes out of there. And just two small things that I, I thought were kind of great out of it. One is amusing. There's a concept called monads. Monads are explained with uh, this person's cat, which is pretty great. <laughs> so I would go check out that. And then another one is uh, Rails update. Rails 7 is adding in order of two queries. So you no longer need to have huge case statements anymore in your order tags for cases when you want to order by specific columns in a certain way, in a certain order. You could just pass it a hash like any old Ruby order, and it's pretty great. It works very well. Awesome. John, what are your picks? So I I am definitely really feeling the stimulus bug this week, so I'm going to 
definitely hitting that up again. I just, I was working on that e-commerce app that I've been working on off and on over the past year. And it uses Spree on the back end. And uh, I actually migrated the entire Spree JavaScript suite over to Webpacker at some point when I stop having other issues with Spree, I will I will look into what it'll take to actually like, you know, send that back up the the river. But yeah, every single time that I have a problem, I uh, just whip out my handy stimulus and uh, just turn off the Spree JavaScript and rewrite it. And it's great. And I love it every time. It's it, it's been it's definitely that sharp sharp knife for me, right? It's super easy to just, yeah, just be like, oh, this Spree JavaScript is getting in my way. And it's literally in like four different files. And I don't really know what they were trying to do. But I can kind of copy and paste the section of code into a new stimulus file, change how I like get in there and maybe some conditions and boom, we're on our way again, right? So that's been really cool. And then my second pick is, so I actually played so there's there's a company out there called uh, great of course now i can't remember what they're called because i'm talking about it owlcat that's right so they made they made a couple of games so pathfinder kingmaker was the one that i previously played yeah i just got it on a steam sale yes. a couple of years ago yes. <laughs> yeah it was pretty cheap it was a great game so if you're familiar with like kind of D stuff at all it's like uh it's like a gamified version of D and it's you can do it in turn-based mode or real-time mode, and it's it's good fun. It's a good story. But they just came out with a new one, I don't know, six months ago or something like that or whatever. And uh, as soon as it went on, I think it was like 5% off on Steam, and I was like, I want this. The, the first game was so good that I was just like, I'm going to do this again. So their new one is called Wrath of the Righteous. I haven't even finished it, but it's pretty much like a power fantasy. You become super powerful and because you're fighting like super powerful bad guys but but it feels good right it's kind of like if you ever played diablo back in the day right you just went around mauling everything on your screen and like the point of the game wasn't that it was really hard to fight stuff the point of the game was that you were just getting stuff in this game it's yeah so it's just different in a, in a world where people are like doing dark Souls stuff and breaking computer monitors to get the you know the next enemy down you know, like this kind of stuff is cool. So anyway, highly recommend it. Having fun. Those are my picks. Awesome. Luke, what are your picks? Hey, a big, big shout out for the stimulus. Thanks to this podcast. John's got me doing the stimulus now. He's got me on the stimulus. And it does kind of ruin you a bit, doesn't it? You know, you just think, oh, just, just dropping the controller yeah. there. Problem solved. Problem solved. So yeah, you've even got me doing it now. So congratulations. My pick is, first pick is the British Computer Society. This is the organization in the UK. My uncle was a member. I remember going to a talk on mainframes many years ago and thinking, ah, I'll never join the British Computer Society. That's what my uncle does. But I have indeed joined BCS. And the reason is because um, it is now my aim to become a chartered engineer. Lots of people describe themselves as software engineers. Quite a few of those people have never changed their own oil and possibly couldn't. But in other areas, the word engineer is a legally protected and regulated uh, word, just like you can't call yourself a doctor if you're not really a doctor, at least in Europe. Then it's it's kind of a protected title. And I wondered, as I was looking through a list of uh, senior engineers, uh, how, you know, is there a proper, like, a, can you be a real engineer in computing? Is there like an official professional organization that says these people are engineers, these people aren't, you know, a kind of professional standards body for code? Turns out there is. There's one in the States, there's one in Britain. The British one is called the BCS. And if you want to become an actual engineering engineer in uh, computing code IT, then that's the way you do it in the UK, join the BCS. The downside is you do need to have a master's degree in computing and i infamously turned down my master's degree a true story so i now need to go and get a master's degree in order to become a real chartered engineer for bcs but how hard can that be right surely surely it's pretty easy to get a master's degree the other 
picks I've got this week just quickly are the Rack Unreloader. So uh, I've been diving through the Jeremy Evans infrastructure. I tried using Rack Unreloader, which is kind of a live constant reloader. So if you redo your uh, classes and you want to reload classes without really reloading your whole app using rerun, this will actually kind of reload your classes in place. So if you add something to a model, like a new method, this will kind of reload it in place. It actually really slows down my development because now my app takes so long to load through Unreloader, then I don't actually get any benefit from it. But I enjoyed I enjoyed using it. And my final pick, if it is pick, is the idea of a rage click, which I never come across before. A rage click is detailed on the blog I'm going to link to. But apparently this is where a user gets so frustrated, they just keep clicking on stuff you know, because it's not working. And if you add a front-end library into your front-end stuff, and lots of these are available there, and I, I don't endorse the one linked in that blog post, but there's loads of this stuff. It can actually detect the users kind of angrily clicking on your website so you would know something is wrong. And the reason I'm picking that is because I'd like to introduce a new concept called React Rage, React.js Rage. And React.js Rage is very, very... um particular and it can't be detected by most of these monitoring frameworks in the same way because react rage is what happens when your react component throws an error and completely destroys your entire single page app and you're left with a totally blank screen and some angry red text in the chrome console so i'd like to introduce the idea of react rage which is when a tiny error in one in a significant part of your react app destroys your whole app and when this happens your users get react rage so that's my last pick react rage all right i'm going to jump in with some picks first of all i'm working on getting this set up right now but uh i'm going to have a phone number where y'all can text me and i'll text you back uh it's not my actual cell number but it's going to be a cell number that i have access to i'm using a system called community community community.com and so anyway, I'll put that in the show notes. I, I have to record a voicemail and I was setting it up right before this and I didn't want to try and do it during the show. So anyway, if you want to text me, then I'll be texting you back. I'll let you know where things are at with uh, top end devs, things like that. And just get feedback on stuff. I really want to be able to know, like, you know, where you're at, what you're struggling with, what you're working on what kinds of content we can put out on the shows to help you out, what kinds of things I can cover in my coaching, what kinds of things I can cover. I'm going to start up another show called The Top End Dev, where I'm going to be talking about more sort of the getting through career, getting through work, getting through the workday, getting more done. Building the career of your dreams is basically what it is, right? So what do you have to do to kind of get to that next space in your career? And I want feedback, right? I want to be able to ask people. I want you to be able to ask me questions and I want to be able to answer them. So Anyway, so I'll have that cell number in there, and I'm using community.com for that. Top end devs, I'm also setting up a Slack server. I, I We have a Discord server, but I found a couple of options that allow me to you know, engage on some of the same things that I want the community set up for on Slack. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm using a system called Campfire. Campfire.so, I think, is where it's at. Um, it's pre-launch. I actually got put in touch with the founder, and we've been working that out. So when you join the Slack server, it'll ask you questions and recommend that you get to the right place. Also using another system called Donut, and Donut allows you to basically set up meetings with other people so you can connect with other folks. Because I feel like that's a big part of being successful as a developer. So anyway, I'm really loving these tools. They are awesome. And so I'm going to pick those. Also, a new book came out from Brandon Sanderson, uh, Cytonic. And I'm looking forward to reading that. So I'm going to pick that. And then finally, I have to put out a board game pick, right? So, man, which one do I pick? I think I'm going to pick Lost Cities. So Lost Cities is a game where you have cards with numbers on them. You have to play a card higher than the number that you currently have in your stack. And that advances your pawns. And then as they move up, they can you get rewards uh, on the different tracks. And anyway, it's a lot of fun. It sounds kind of mundane it's pretty simple but it's a fun game it's one of it's one of the ones that we like to go to and, and play so uh, i'm going to pick lost cities uh incidentally if you go back and listen to episode one lost cities was picked by james edward gray in episode one and that's where i found it so anyway yeah i think i'll stop there moximo what are your picks i would like to share a, a library that 
I'm excited about. Uh, it's called Polyphony, and it provides an alternate concurrency model for Ruby that is based around an event loop, but in a way that is very transparent because it uses fibers. So super powerful stuff, uh, and I'm you know I would like to see uh, where it goes. I don't think it's ready for production yet, but it seems like it it could be a really beneficial for for anything related with with concurrency in Ruby. And yeah, that's that's my pick. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming and talking through Vite with us. This was fun. And uh, I'm, for, I'm looking forward for to going and breaking stuff with it. So cool. Oh, and if you, I would like to reshare a link that, that Luke mentioned. Uh, if you like to give it a try, especially around if you don't know what HMR is and would like to try it out, you can see the star template. I haven't revisited it in a while. Should work if the gems are locked. And, and you can give it a try. Nice. So I was looking up Lost Cities. I'm just going to throw this in and then we'll end the recording on Amazon. It looks like there is a new version. Um, so it has the classic version with five expeditions and then it has a another version with a sixth expedition. So I might have to go spend some money on that. I'll put a link in the show notes. And with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up. Until next time, folks, Max out. Take care, everybody. Bye, folks. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.